Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Come on in here with your coffee. My name is Jared Lawson. I'll pray for us and we will begin. The lesson you've all been waiting for, the first great awakening. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for history, that it's our opportunity to see men and women who desire to be faithful, some who didn't, and just see their failures, see where your spirit moved, how it might be moving in our day and what we can learn from them. Now, I pray that even as we look at this uh, time period of this great revival, that it would stir our hearts, that we would uh, not want simple emotions or enthusiasm or something like that, but genuine uh, revival brought about by your Spirit. So I pray that you would be with us as we look at this time. I pray in your Son's name, amen. Okay, so we've been walking through church history over the past year, and we've, we're getting closer and closer to our day. We've, we've looked at uh, the Puritans, kind of the first people coming over uh, to settle in the colonies. We looked at Jonathan Edwards last week, one of the biggest figures in church history, but especially in American history. And today we're going to be looking at that same time period uh, of Jonathan Edwards during the first great awakening, this time of, of, of massive, uh, a massive revival movement in the 1700s. Hundreds, something that is going to significantly shape the air that we breathe, significantly shape evangelicalism that we kind of uh, exist in today. So we're simply going to go over the story of the awakening, uh, specifically looking at uh, uh, America and the colonies, not really uh, as much John, uh, John Wesley in England, who cares about the Brits, we're focused on America, right? Uh, so we'll look at the story of the awakening, we'll look at the theology of the awakening, and then we're going to look at the effects of the awakening. How is the awakening, uh, the first great awakening, affected us today sitting in these chairs? So that is kind of where we're going. Uh, so let's start with the story of the awakening. The context of the time uh, is pre-revolutionary America, okay? So don't think, you know, we're not independent from, the king is still ruling, King George the whatever, whoever the bad guy is in the, the Hamilton play is still in charge, okay? Uh, so uh, colonial America, the biggest city was Boston, that was about 17,000 people, so to give you an idea, that's uh, less than a tenth the size of McKinney. Okay, that's the biggest city in America at this point. Uh, the world is still very Puritan, very English. There's tiers of society. You have a ruling class and you have kind of the, the, the lay people. And the clergy, uh, the pastors, are in the ruling class. Okay, most towns were built with the, the church in the center, and to be a functional member of society, you had to be a member of that church. Vir virtually every infant would have been baptized, again, with these small towns, everyone claiming that they're Christian, everyone knows who belongs uh, to uh, the church, and so that, that is kind of the world that they're living in. Everyone says they're a Christian. Jeff mentioned this a bit uh, last week, talking about Jonathan Edwards. It's a world where everyone would have said they're a Christian, very few people would have actually lived like it. Okay, it's a, a time when there was a, a lot of religious stagnation, if you will. They're experiencing some of the prosperity of the new world because people are just buying tobacco like you wouldn't believe, and they're buying sugar or whatever, you know. And so they're, they're, they're prosperous, and this has kind of brought um, some complacency. Uh, this strong Puritan heritage is kind of losing its effect. Moral laxity is becoming the norm. Everyone's saying that they're Christian, but again, they're, they're, they're not really bearing the fruit uh, of the Christian life, the fruit of the Spirit. That is the, the context that Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley and all those guys are being born into. So, with that being the world, let's look at this kind of first wave of the awakening. 1734 uh, in Northampton, 
New England. Jonathan Edwards is a pastor. He's laboring and fighting, preaching the gospel, kind of laying the groundwork for the awakening, praying, trying to kind of shake his people awake. Uh, But again, uh, it's almost no fruit being seen until uh, mid-1734, we start to see kind of the first bits of the awakening. And the key moment uh, that happened where there were two unexpected deaths, which is saying something because the life expectancy was like 40 at that time, but two very unexpected deaths uh, of these young people in the town, very small town of about maybe a thousand. Uh, And Jonathan Edwards, seizing the opportunity, preaches both funeral sermons points to the eternal realities of either glory with God or eternal hell, eternal torment, and points his people furthermore to the infinitely greater beauties of knowing Jesus, of communing with their father versus the kind of trivial things of the world that they seem to be giving their lives to. And you can imagine, I mean, even in our day, when someone close to us dies, especially if it's unexpected, we have this moment of thinking through, okay, what am I living for? What, what really is my purpose here? There's this kind of sobering that happens, and Edwards jumps at the opportunity, points them to ultimate reality, and points them to Jesus. And from that moment, from those two deaths and Edwards preaching, revival began to break out in the city. Revival begins to break out. Notorious sinners, notorious you know, drunkards in the town are repenting. They're leading others to do the same. Uh, people that were just uh, consumed with depression are all of a sudden walking in the joy of the Lord. They're gathering together uh, in small groups to read the Bible together and pray and encourage one another, all kind of without Edward's hands on it. It wasn't like the pastor saying, okay, we're gonna start a community groups ministry. People just on their own, because they were experiencing these kind of revival impulses were gathering because they wanted to read the scriptures. They wanted to pray. They were experiencing this stirring from the Lord. Everything that had once been a duty, this is often a mark of revival, everything that had just once been a religious duty all of a sudden became a delight. Right? We want to gather together and do these things, which by the way, for a pastor, uh, one of the most encouraging things that you know, our staff or our elders will talk about is things that you guys do that we didn't tell you to do. And we'll hear someone you know, lost their job and all of a sudden a community group has raised money and is uh, helping that person get back on their feet without Zach saying, hey, raise a bunch of money and help that person get on their feet. That is way more encouraging to us than preaching a sermon and you guys saying, that was a great sermon. That's kind of encouraging, but if you actually see your hearts being stirred and that overflowing, that is far more encouraging to a minister. And so Jonathan Edwards is seeing this. He's, he's incredibly encouraged by it. Uh, and he writes in uh, his, his, his account of this whole revival, we'll talk about in a second, a faithful narrative. This is how he describes uh, the, the revival stirrings of the first great awakening. All talk other than spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All conversations in all companies and upon all occasions was upon these things only, unless so much as was necessary for people carrying uh, on their ordinary secular business. Other discourse other than the things of religion would be scarcely tolerated in any company. The temptation now seemed to neglect worldly affairs too much and to spend too much time in immediate exercise of religion. So apparently this revival is so strong that Edwards is like, okay, now people aren't going to work. You still need to go to work and you know, support your family and things like that. They're neglecting the world, worldly affairs, as he would say it, too much because of the, they're, they're, they're talking about religion so much. Which, by the way, uh, religion, if you see the word religion in basically any person's writings before our day, that's never a bad word. It's a bad word in our day. We kind of use it to say, you know, it's like dead, 
you know, uh, practice of, you know, we just do this and do this and do this because we think, you know, it earns us favor before God. That's typically how we use religion. We'll say, you know, Christianity is about a relationship with the living God, not just religious duty. That's not how Edwards is going to use it. Religion just means Christianity, devotion to God. So it's a good word when he uses it. But apparently this revival is breaking out so strongly that that's all people want to do. Is, is talk about God, read the scriptures, gather together, pray, and they're not tolerating any non-God talk, right? So that's all in Northampton. That's a picture, by the way, of, of Edwards Church. Uh, I took that picture, which is why it is <laughs> subpar. Uh, so uh, that's Edwards Church. That's all happening in Northampton. It's beginning to spread to the neighboring towns. Again, people in the neighboring towns are starting to do the same, gather in small groups, pray, encourage one another. Skeptics, uh, as news of, the, of this revival are spreading, people are thinking, surely it can't be that great. They're coming to visit Northampton and they are getting converted. They're being kind of consumed by this revival as well. Uh, and they're joining in, in all these people that are uh, loving this movement of God. So this is all at Northampton, centered around Edwards and his church. Uh, and he is capitalizing on this. He is beginning to organize his sermons around what God is doing in their day. He's beginning to meet with people and counsel and walk through what's happening in their heart. All of his teachings are around the moment that they are living in, uh, that God is doing this incredible work. Uh, they all, the, every Christian in Edwards' day, and especially Edwards, viewed what was happening in their day as historic. God is doing something in our town right now that will lead ultimately to this incredible Christian nation uh, where we will continue, the, the gospel will go and, and be successful and the heathen will be converted and Christ will return to his glorious kingdom. And it was all happening there. That's their view. It's not just, oh, this is nice. Some people are becoming Christians. They're saying God is doing something here. God is hyper-focused where we're living and pouring out revival. This is a massive, massive, deal in their mind. So Edwards is trying to do all that he can to kind of shepherd this thing. He's not just letting the kind of charismatic chaos just run its course. He's getting in there, counseling people, teaching them how to study the Bible, things like that. Uh, and uh, furthermore, as, as news of this big event is happening, uh, obviously doubts begin to creep in. Surely it can't be that big of a deal. A lot of people were saying, surely it's not as legitimate People are probably exaggerating this. And so Edwards, uh, Jeff pointed out this book uh, last week, writes a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God and the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire uh, in New England, okay? Very descriptive titles. Early, in the early, early church, when they write a book, they'd name it On the Trinity, and then they'd move on. Edwards Day, they swung the pendulum to the other side, and they said, you basically just need to read the title and... You don't really need to read the book because we said everything it's about. Uh, and so he's writing a, an account of what's happening. Edwards wants more than anything to people, for people to grasp this is a real work of God. As people are looking at it and saying, no, this is just people getting excited. This is kind of excessive, just emotions. Edwards is fighting. No, no, no. This is real. The spirit is really working. People are really being converted and brought to repentance. And so this book was one of his first attempts of doing that. He wants to erase the doubts that this isn't God. This is just some sort of manipulation that he's doing. He wants to remove that idea. So he writes this. And this brings him kind of international recognition. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, guys in England are going to get it, read it, be inspired by it, and begin to preach in England. It's one of the first things that kind of stirs some of the revivals as we see John Wesley travel through England. Even George Whitfield begin to preach. 
And so all this is happening for a couple of years. And then after a couple of years, uh, these revival fires begin to die down as this first wave kind of comes to an end and people begin to slide back into sin. This is really discouraging for Jonathan Edwards. He actually calls it uh, Satan's counterattack. Okay, so again, if, if you're viewing this as God is doing this incredible thing, he's advancing his kingdom in our town, of course this is gonna catch the devil's attention and of course the devil is going to fight back. And so they slide back into their sin. Edwards goes back to faithfully trying to labor, trying to preach on the eternal realities that are before them and, and kind of shake them awake again. But it kind of ends around 1736, a couple years after it began. Uh, and then there's a couple years of you know, back to normal spiritual laxity. That's kind of the first wave. And then in 1740, we have the second wave, which is, is much, much bigger. Much people, or a lot of people actually consider this, when they say the awakening, they, they mean the second wave. Uh, so the first wave is focused on Edwardstown, uh, Northampton, and, and kind of some of the surrounding towns. And it's led by the pastors of those towns, led by Edwards. The second wave it's not going to be local, it's going to be all over throughout all the cities and it's pr- uh, primarily going to be stirred by these traveling itinerant preachers who would go gra- uh, gather great crowds, just preach on the street corner, thousands would listen uh, from all over, from multiple denominations. It's not just the Puritan, or not Puritans, Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists kind of having nothing to do with each other, just l- listening to their pastor. They're all coming and they're hearing these itinerant preachers. They're uh, being brought to repentance and then they're going back into their churches. And these crowds are, are following these traveling preachers. Uh, the most famous by far uh, is George Whitfield. George Whitfield, his picture there, apparently he was cross-eyed. Uh, one of the things he's famous for, other than being a great preacher, he was a cross-eyed great preacher. Uh, and so that, that, those are, you, see, you see the difference there? A local, you know, focused on a church, be like if revival broke out here and kind of just spread to Prosper and, and Frisco or whatever, versus, you know, Billy Graham going around and drawing great crowds and then people coming from the Billy Graham conference back into the church. So George Whitfield is, is the guy, he is the preacher uh, of the First Great Awakening. If Jonathan Edwards is the theologian uh, of the First Great Awakening, Whitfield is the preacher of the First Great Awakening, although they both do a bit of both. Uh, so he was English. He was an Anglican kind of rebel. He didn't follow the, the, the kind of prescribed way of a, an Anglican minister. He goes outside the church, begins to preach on street corners. He had read a faithful narrative. Again, he kind of used it as a guidebook for revival, and he would just Stand on street corners, preach to coal miners in England. Thousands were getting saved. Uh, Revival seems to follow him wherever he goes, and he eventually comes to America and does a kind of tour through America, preaching to thousands, again, in all of these major cities. Drawing great crowds, he'll preach. Which, by the way, this is a bit of a side rant. Don't do this anymore. It was normal in his day. It's not normal in our day. Listen to Zach's sermon on evangelism from two weeks ago or a week ago. It's the best sermon on evangelism I've ever ever heard. He makes me say that. Uh, That's what's normal in our culture. It is normal. No one thinks, well, that guy screaming through a megaphone is weird. In the 1700s, they think, oh, we don't have movies yet. This is entertaining. Let's listen to him. In our day, they think, that guy's weird, and I'm not listening to him, and all you're doing is making yourself look weird. So... Quit doing that. It was normal in their day. It's not normal in our day. But he would do this. Uh, Whitfield and the other guys, Whitfield was incredibly energetic, incredibly uh, passionate, longed to see souls converted and, and come to know Jesus. His quote there, my one desire is to bring poor souls 
to Jesus Christ. Uh, his, his preaching was described as kind of like a stage actor. In fact, he didn't have a pulpit that he would bring. He had a portable stage that he would set up and he would stand up on it uh, and he would weep and he would wail and he had you know, his big motions with his hands and some, some people actually thought it was a bit uh, over the top, but he had this booming voice. Again, he's preaching to tens of thousands in the open air. You have to have a really loud, loud voice to do that and he would just draw the audiences in with his vivid imagery. If you go, you can go read his sermons online. I encourage you to do so. He just had this way about his preaching that he would draw people in. And as thousands gathered, uh, they described his preaching as they were being pierced with arrows. They're crying out in repentance as they're hearing him preach. It seems that just tons were being converted every time he'd open his mouth. Uh, And if you just hear that phrase, pierced with arrows, what does that sound like if you've read Acts? Cut to the heart, right? That seems to be how the Spirit works uh, in, in preaching. When you're being truly convicted by the Spirit, there's this feeling of recognition that you're a sinner before holy God, this cut to the heart that makes you cry out, what must I do to be saved? And so that same description was given to a lot of his preaching. Again, he's traveling through America, uh, the colonies, going to Philadelphia, New Jersey, Boston, New York, all the major cities. Uh, uh, some estimates when he preached in Boston, some estimates of the crowd, uh, we don't really know, is about between 15 to 20,000 uh, people. If, uh, if that's true, that's the largest crowd ever assembled in America up to that point. Uh, so he, he is a celebrity as, you know, this is the thing that, Almost everyone is doing, and so as he goes through, it's not just, you know, oh, this weird Christian guy, it's, oh, Whitfield is coming to our town. Whitfield's coming to our town. So thousands are coming to listen to him. Again, from multiple denominations, it's kind of beginning to cause or you know, create this denominational melting pot as all these different people are listening to him, and the awakening seems to go wherever he goes. Uh, there's an old quote from a guy that was interviewed uh, when he was an old man long after, he had actually heard Whitfield in person and he said, you know, when you listen to Whitfield, you didn't necessarily always get a good sermon, but the spirit worked no matter what. Some were good, some were hit and miss, but people seemed to be brought to repentance no matter what. Uh, and so even uh, Ben Franklin, who was a good friend of Whitfield, the famous uh, inventor of electricity, uh, says this, uh, it seemed as if all of the world was growing religious or were growing religious. Again, Ben Franklin, a deist, uh, not a Christian, but seems to just observe, it seems everyone around us is super, super uh, interested in religion as all these people are listening to Whitfield. And uh, in his two and a half month tour through the states, or through, again, the colonies, not the states, uh, it's estimated that he preached around 175 sermons a lot, so he had a lot of energy. Uh, and again, the forms that it took when he would preach uh, in the crowd, don't think Billy Graham crusade. Don't think listening politely in your chairs, I think I'll walk the aisle, I'll be prayed for, and then I'll go home and think, man, that's great. Don't think that. Uh, what is actually happening is people are weeping loud, really loud. It was described as screeching. Some people would fall on the ground and wail under the weight of their sin. Some people uh, reported, it's reported that some people passed out and literally needed to be carried out of the crowd under the weight of their sin. So w- we would call it chaotic, right? We would probably be uncomfortable if during someone's sermon, someone was screaming in the back or someone fell into the aisle, passed out because they're so convicted. But that is the norm when George Whitfield is opening his mouth to preach. People described it as they couldn't eat or sleep until this arrow in their hearts uh, was healed, uh, in fact, if you read a lot of those guys, one of the things they say, the first mark that we can really see God working is people can't sleep. 
People are so convicted under the weight of their sin that they can't do the most basic functions. They can't eat until peace is brought to their hearts, until they truly reach the second mark, which is peace in the gospel, peace in the fact that there's a savior who's stood in my place. I don't need to feel uh, the weight of my sin because he took the weight of my sin. But a lot of those guys even describe that, that not being able to eat, not being able to sleep, they would say, good, spirit's working. Go home and don't sleep and think about your lost soul until you realize that the gospel is uh, the reality that you need to trust in. So that's what it looks like when he's preaching in the open air. And so this is happening again all throughout the colonies. And then Edwards hears that he's there. He knows of him. Again, he's this huge celebrity. And he writes to him and asks him, please, will you come to Northampton and will you please preach to my church. Again, Edwards is, is wanting his people to be stirred again. He wants his people to believe the gospel. They've slid back into their sin after this first wave of the awakening, and he wants to, them to believe the gospel again. He wants them to turn back away from their sin and walk in holiness. And Whitfield, again, knows Edwards. He's read his, his book, A Faithful Narrative, and he accepts. Uh, and so you have kind of a unique thing of this big historical event. The two main figures uh, significantly will influence one another. Stay at each other, or uh, Whitfield will stay at Edwards' house. Uh, Whitfield loves, quickly falls in love with Jonathan Edwards' family. He helps him lead family devotions, takes his kids aside, tells them about the Lord, asks them about their walks with the Lord. Edwards later writes to him after he leaves that he thinks a few of his kids have been, quote, brought savingly home to Christ. You can imagine if you're a parent, the, the affections you would feel for someone who has led your children to the Lord. That's what Edwards begins to feel for Whitfield, loves him. And Whitfield begins to be really, really imp- impressed with his family, mostly Edwards' marriage. Uh, he was celibate at the time, wanted to be celibate, thought he had the gift. And after he watched uh, Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards interact, he thought, Nope, I want a wife. And he started to pray for God to send him a wife like Sarah Edwards. Uh, he would eventually get married. Uh, but so that, that, that's their family, or uh, Whitfield interacts with Edward's family. They grow in affections for one another. And then Whitfield preaches four different times at Edward's church and the spirit moves powerfully. Revival begins to break out. People weep and are, uh, the revival fires break out. They're, they're co- convicted of their sins. And Edward says that the, the fires that were once there were reignited in a much, much stronger way. Edwards himself wept uh, seemingly the whole weekend, he said, as he listens to Whitfield uh, preach again. He, he's desperately been praying to the Lord, please stir my people, please uh, shake them out of their sin, give them uh, affections for you. And then all of a sudden he's seeing it in one weekend as people weeping and repenting before a holy God and wanting to know him and follow him and walk in obedience and holiness. And so his heart as a preacher is, is warmed and revival again shows up there and breaks out into the surrounding towns, seems to spread continually. So Whitfield's the main guy. He wasn't the only guy. Uh, There are other itinerant preachers, guys like Gilbert Tennant or Daniel Rogers, who are also traveling around. Not all of them great. We'll talk about that uh, in a second. But there's these itinerant guys. And then uh, kind of after Whitfield comes to Edwards Church, local pastors like Edwards begin to shoulder some of the load of the preaching as well. So Edwards begins to really, really preach. Uh, and go help other pastors in surrounding towns, both kind of shepherd, again, the revival, and he preaches as well. And the most famous 
uh, sermon that Edwards gave was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jeff mentioned this last week. We've all heard it. It's considered, or we've all heard about it. It's considered one of the most famous sermons uh, in America, if not the most famous. That picture there is of my wife, Claudia, (laughs) by a rock uh, marking the site of where Edwards preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in Enfield, Connecticut. Uh, we, uh, we took a class in New England, the seminary I went to, we were in Charlotte, but they had a campus in New England and we went and took an intensive course, a week-long course there, actually on uh, the, the awakening, on the revivals. And uh, my wife kind of planned out this little tour for us to do. We were gonna take the class for a week and then my dad loves the Red Sox, though he's born and raised in uh, Texas, but he loves the Red Sox. So he said, stay there another week. I'll come join you. We'll go watch the Red Sox. And then we said, cool. And we'll run around New England and do a fun First Great Awakening tour. And he said, that doesn't sound cool, but I love you guys and I'm in. And so uh, we were going all around. And uh, the next thing was Claudia, who had, you know, our itinerary was like, okay, next, we're going to go see the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God site. And I said, awesome. And my dad said, how far is this? And the answer to that was 45 minutes, we drove, and then we parked in someone's driveway, and there was this rock, basically in their front yard, and my dad said, this is what we just drove an hour for, to see this rock? And we said, yeah, you stay here, we're gonna go take pictures by this. So, that's that picture. Uh, That rock basically just says, here's where Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and behind to the right, you see someone's house, and we're standing in their front yard. I don't know if that's legal. If it was Texas, I'd be too scared to do it. You know, you get shot for things like that in Texas standing on someone's property. But anyway, so that's where Edwards preached it, Enfield, Connecticut, again, around Northampton, uh, hadn't experienced uh, revival yet. And so they ask Edwards to come preach. He travels and he preaches this sermon. He does play a big role preaching. Uh, He doesn't have Whitfield's booming voice, but a lot of his power comes from the content of what he's actually preaching. So Jeff read a little excerpt from it. I'm gonna give you just an overview of, of what the sermon actually was about. Again, remember, Enfield hadn't experienced revival up to this time. Remember, this is a day of uh, just moral laxity in the church. Everyone's saying they're a Christian. No one really living like it. A discerning heart saying there doesn't seem to be, if Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, there doesn't seem to be any fruit here of actual trusting in the gospel. So he preaches this song to, in his mind, sinners. He's not trying to uh, preach this to Christians who, uh, you know, he just wants to really struggle with condemnation. He's preaching this to what he believes are sinners who have never really understood the gospel. And so he wants to paint the eternal realities of hell very, very, very clearly so that they understand. Everyone would have said they believed in hell on that day. Very few lived like it actually existed. And so Edward's sermon paints this clear picture. So here's kind of the outline. First section, Edwards displays the true reality of a sinner, again, not a Christian, a sinner before a holy God. Point number one, there is nothing that keeps wicked men out of hell at any one moment except the mere pleasure of God. Let's start with the first point. Nothing keeps you out of hell right now than the fact that God is holding you in his hand. You're in his hand, hell is beneath you. He and he alone decides when you go in. That's point number one, okay? Now you're starting to appreciate our like fun uh, sermon intros. You know, one time I was, you know, off on vacation and my aunt threw up or whatever. And you're like, oh, this is great. Not Edwards. His intros were really uh, sobering. Point number two, 
consider that sinners deserve to be cast into hell. Justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment for their sin. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads and it is nothing but the hand of all powerful mercy and God's sovereign will holding it back. You're in his hand. Hell is beneath you. Nothing is keeping you out of hell but his mere pleasure and justice itself is rightly calling out for you to be dumped in and nothing is holding the sword of justice back except again, God. The very one you've offended, by the way. Point three, sinners are already standing under condemnation. God is just delaying it. You already deserve this. God is just holding it back. Point number four, sinners deserve the wrath from hell. This isn't uh, injustice. You deserve the wrath of hell, O sinner, for the rebellion, yet God is delayed. The very one you've rebelled against, the very one in whose face you have spit is the one holding you out of hell. Point number four, the devil stands ready to prey upon sinners. God is holding him back. It's not just God holding you out of hell. The devil is trying to cast you in, yet God is holding him back. Point number six, our wicked hearts would consume us even further if God did not restrain its evil. Even God is holding back our our, our wicked hearts that would consume us all the more. There is nothing between you and hell except the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Section one, right? Okay, there's more. Don't... Uh, and in case you thought there'd be relief, there's not. So that's the reality. You are a sinner before a holy God. All these things demand you be cast into hell. There's one reason you're not right now, him. The very one that's holding you out is the one that you've rebelled against. Section two, our best efforts change nothing about this reality. Even if you were to recognize, okay, that situation is real and it's not that great, there's nothing you can do about it. Try to live the holiest life you could ever live. There's nothing you can do to get you out of this situation. Point one, all our efforts to preserve our own life don't keep you safe for one moment. God's the one that keeps you alive. Go hide in your basement with a lifetime provision of food and water so you don't ever get in a car because you might get in a car wreck. Do whatever you can to preserve your life. You could have a heart attack at any moment. There's nothing you can do to keep yourself alive and out of hell one moment longer. God's the one that keeps you alive. Point number two, All your righteousness has no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell any more than a spider's web could stop a falling rock. Every bit of righteousness you could muster to offer a holy God is filthy rags. It can't uphold you out of hell any more than a spider's web would stop a falling rock. You see that. Rock would fall right through. It's a joke to think a web could hold up a falling rock. Point number three. If God were only to withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth in inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. Think of it. If your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, it would be nothing to withstand and endure the wrath of God. Do you see this terrifying picture? And by the way, I would say incredibly accurate picture a sinner before a holy God. All these things are true and so much more than we can imagine. We are such worse sinners than we could ever fathom. The reality of hell is so much worse than we can ever fathom. This is probably a joke considering the actual realities of hell. Edwards paints it vividly before the people. And there's one way out. There's one way out. That's the reality of a sinner before a holy God and there's only one way out. How he ends it. 
And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown open the door of mercy and stands calling and crying with a voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, south, many who were very recently in the same miserable condition that you were in and are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love for him who have loved them and washed from their sin, washed them from their sins with his own blood. They're rejoicing in the hope of glory. How does he end it? He doesn't say do better. He says there's one way out. Jesus Christ, flee to him. There are thousands, look around New England, thousands who are just as miserable as you are now and they've clung to him and their misery has been turned to infinite joy. Join them, flee to him. The only way out of this miserable state for a sinner is to cling to the only one who's ever been born who's not a sinner the only one who is actually righteous, the only one who is actually perfect and became our advocate before holy God. To where that holy God, it's no longer you standing in the hands of an angry God, it's you standing in the hand of a God who becomes your father by adoption. What does Jesus say in the gospels? They're in my hand, no one can snatch them from my hand. They're in my hand, no one can snatch them from my father's hand. All of a sudden that hand doesn't become the most terrifying thing you could ever imagine. It becomes the most assuring thing you could ever imagine. That's the gospel. That is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Our culture who just hears the title and thinks, "Mm, condemnation. Edwards wouldn't say that. He'd say, this is the reality of the gospel. So he preaches this. He preaches it a lot, but he preaches it in infield. And uh, he doesn't really get to finish because people are crying out and weeping. uh, And it's so loud that they literally can't hear him preaching. That's how you know if your sermon's really good. You don't get to finish because there's just such repentance. Uh, so he preaches this. There's mass revival that breaks out in Enfield. And then again, Edwards kind of continually travels around, helps people uh, by preaching at their churches, shepherding the awakening, things like that. Uh, and that's, that's essentially the story of that second wave, traveling itinerant preachers, Edwards and other local pastors helping shepherd it as well. But the awakening wasn't without its uh, controversies. It's serious, serious controversy. So as it's spreading... All throughout New England, uh, it's bringing a lot of social unrest. Again, remember, their day is a very uh, uh, tiered system, the ruling class and the lay people. And one of the things that Whitfield and the itinerant preachers were starting to do is kind of stir this revolutionary uh, unrest in in the commoners. Okay, remember, this is 30 years before the American Revolution. We'll, we'll look in just a second about the awakening's effects on the revolution. But what it's doing is it's kind of overturning the social hierarchy. The clergy, which used to basically run the morality of their city, uh, all of a sudden, the, the, the lay people are beginning to think for themselves and they're, they're walking in holiness and they're feeling the stirring of the spirit. And so they're beginning to point their finger at their own pastors and saying, you don't live like this, a lot of them. You just you know, have this nice ruling class position. You're not walking in holiness. And uh, fueling that fire is Whitfield and a lot of the other itinerant preachers begin to preach against what they called unconverted clergy. Basically, all these guys just thought, hey, it's a nice job to be a pastor. I get to you know, dictate whatever I want and get people in trouble in the church and in my town. So there was this temptation, again, when things are easy to just have people in there who are not really fit uh, for the position. And so Whitfield, again, with the, with the focus on the conversion of the heart, on genuine love for God, to look at the clergy and say, these guys not only are just, you know, stale and boring, they're probably not even Christians. And their congregation said, yeah. 
And so it's, you can imagine uh, the ruling class not really liking that as not only are they saying you're a bad pastor, but they're saying you're probably not a Christian. So that causes a lot of unrest. Whitfield, or, uh, Edwards actually tells Whitfield, pump the brakes with this. You know, you're, you're causing a lot of mess and you, know, you don't know all these people's hearts. So be careful. Whitfield says, I hear what you're saying. I don't care. Uh, and it keeps kind of doing it. So uh, causes, uh, that's, that's one of the things that's causing this huge controversy. One of the reasons why a lot of people are going to be very much against the awakening isn't just because they think this isn't really God. They think this is ruining my life and this is causing a lot of headaches for me. And these rock star preachers who are traveling around, you know, setting up their fun stands and crying uh, like Whitfield would do, they're just making all of our people mad at me. I don't like this, this is bad. And so you're starting to get strong, strong divisions of people who don't like the awakening for all those reasons and people that do. And then the biggest problem uh, that caused a lot of controversy is what uh, we'll call false enthusiasm or excessive uh, emotionalism. Edwards said this is by far the biggest issue uh, in the awakening. Uh, when revival fires would you know, burn through a town, it wasn't clear which of these were actual, you know, the work of the true spirit of God leading to godly affections and which is uh, the devil's counterfeit, what Edwards caused, or called the devil's counterfeit, just kind of excessive emotion. People that would hear the same sermon, cry, you know, tear their clothes, wail on the floor and then get up and then continue to walk in their sin. Live like the devil, as Edwards would say. And so both of those things were happening. Same event, same cries, some people walk in holiness, some people walk uh, in sin. And so, like most of us, if you've ever, you know, if you think about the spiritual gifts, most people will say, I was a part of a charismatic church one time and it was crazy. So the gifts are wrong. You're like, okay, hang on. Okay, okay, you saw really bad abuse, but let's not evaluate everything based on that abuse. Let's evaluate based on the scriptures. That's what's happening in the awakening. People are seeing excessive emotionalism, people wailing and then no change in their life. And they're saying, look, this is all fake. I just saw what's his face at the Whitfield sermon and I just saw him getting drunk and sleeping around. Clearly this is fake. And so Edwards is fighting and fighting against this. Because remember, Edwards is fighting for, this is real, this is a real mark, or this is a real work of God. This is just the devil's counterfeit. Okay, this is the devil's counterfeit to the genuine work of God. And Edwards would say, every time the Lord renews his church, again, the devil's gonna counterattack. This is a big deal that's happening here. God's doing something incredible. And so the devil's gonna devote all of his attention to it. Uh, and so this is gonna lead to kind of a splitting of two groups, what are called the old lights, people who don't like the awakening, and the new lights, people who do like the awakening, like Edwards and Whitfield. And that, that kind of group is gonna lead towards a lot of roots of evangelicalism. So that's kind of the controversy. And then after a certain amount of years, it just kind of dies out. People don't necessarily slide back into sin like after the first wave, but people just, you know, Whitfield goes home to England and Edwards dies and stuff like that. And so people are like, cool, I'll just go hear a sermon and be a normal Christian. You know, you, you can only cry out and weep over your sin so many times, right? Uh, so uh, it just kind of goes back to normal Christianity in the end of the 14, or sorry, 1740s. So that, that is the story of the first great awakening. Uh, the two main figures, Whitfield, the preacher, Edwards, the theologian, we'll look at a lot of what he was uh, thinking through and teaching in this next section. What is the theology of the first great awakening? First of all, there are three key elements, three factors that were kind of the catalyst for every revival in the first great awakening. And there's no secret sauce to this. 
You're going to think, oh, it's not, you know, have a really great charismatic preacher or something like that. The first is prayer. Second is preaching the word. The third is repentance. Anytime you saw the revival break out in New England, those three elements were there. You had ministers that had been praying for years and years and years, desperately begging God to shake their people awake. Again, everyone is saying they're a Christian. And so you almost have to convince someone that they're not a Christian first before you tell them the gospel because they're just surrounded by religious things. I mean that in the bad way of saying religious. You're just surrounded by religious activity. And so you think, yeah, being a Christian is going to church and you know, following a couple more rules and then you die and because you were good, you go to heaven. And Edwards and these guys are saying, no. So they're begging God to stir their people awake. So prayer always is preceding these things. You never find a prayerless people that experience the revival. And then the second is the preaching of the word. Again, this didn't come out of nowhere. It came through men faithfully preaching the gospel, faithfully preaching the scriptures. There's no secret formula. There's no you know, magical topic that all of a sudden, oh wow, this one really, really works. And this really makes people you know, come to the Lord. They're preaching God's word. And then third is repentance. Most depictions you see, if you Google you know, First Great Awakening and click images, you'll see people crying out. You'll see people tearing their clothes, things like that. That is the, the mark. When people hear the gospel, they're pierced with arrows. They're cut to the heart. And then that repentance leads to godly living, holy living. You see those three factors everywhere. That doesn't guarantee revival, right? God still has to pour it out. It's the spirit of God that works, not man's you know, manipulation. But... Those are the marks of kind of man's faithfulness anytime you see revival and the great awakening, which if you notice, that is almost the exact pattern anytime you see this massive movement of God in the book of Acts. How many times do you see the church gather? You see the spirit after they, uh, after they pray, fill, uh, fill the room. And then the next chapter, you see them preaching the gospel. And then what do you hear? Cut to the heart, what must I do to be saved? Thousands were added to their number that day. What are those three factors? Prayer, preaching the word, and repentance. The same from Acts all the way to the awakening. Uh, I wrote here, Acts 4. Uh, when they had prayed, the place uh, in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, you see right after that in chapter 5, more people repenting, coming to the Lord. Again, as we think about the awakening, uh, this isn't just a fun, you know, historical fact. This is something that we want to be. Are we, are we a people who value those three things? Are we a praying people? Do we actually cry out to God? I mean, Parkway's growing. That's great. Uh, are we a praying people that disciples would be made here? Are we a praying people that McKinney would have more than just four churches that really preach the gospel and long for people to know God? Or are we uh, okay with the 96 who, you know, 90 of them don't open the Bibles on Sunday. Are we a praying people? Do we preach the word? And that's one of the reasons we put such a high value on that. Every Sunday, we're preaching the scriptures. We think that is what God has commanded us to do. And are we a people that listen, that have an expectation that God's word would sift us, would, would rip sin out of our heart? Or do we think we're you know, so great that this is just a fun activity. We see some friends, hear a good sermon. Zach tells some jokes and we go home or go eat and then go home, of course. Uh, is it just kind of a game we play over and over again? Or do we have the expectation that the actual spirit of the living God would actually move in our hearts and change us? Every single Sunday, do we have this expectation? Do we think he's inactive? Or do we have this expectation that he would move among us? So think about that. That's the first. We see those three marks, prayer, preaching the word, and then uh, repentance, right? That leads to disciples. And then the next thing 
probably the biggest, uh, biggest element of the theology of the first great awakening is religious affections. What is the true work of the spirit of God and what is the devil's counterfeit? If everyone's having the same experience, that's the key question. Which experience is from God and which experience is from the devil? Remember, the devil wants his counterfeit to look like the real thing. What is more dangerous, uh, you know, Mormons or Hinduism, Christianity, obviously they're both dangerous in some sense. Mormonism, why? They use all the same words, they use all the same terms. No religion could be more different from Christianity than Mormonism, okay? So uh, the, the, a counterfeit that looks closest to the real thing is most dangerous because people think there's no big deal. If you have to convince God or convince people of, of uh, God versus you know, a billion Hindu gods, that's, at least you're talking about two different spheres versus Mormonism. You have to say, okay, when I say Jesus and you say Jesus, we're talking about two different people. Yours doesn't exist uh, and isn't God. Mine has always existed and is God. Uh, and so you have to do that whole thing. So Edwards is, is really devoting a lot of time to this. What is truly from God? What is from the devil? What is leading people away from God? Uh, and, and one of the first things he has to point out is the experience itself isn't bad. We live in the kind of emotions over truth day, so there's a tendency in us to swing the pendulum to just say any emotions, horrible, postmodern, bad, woke, whatever. Who gave us emotions? God. So rem remember that as we have those conversations. Uh, but Edwards is gonna say the experience that they're having is good. If it is from God, it's good. It's the result of, of the work of God, these kind of emotions that are happening. The question is, is it enthusiasm or is it what he's gonna call religious affection? So let's look at the bad one first. Uh, enthusiasm, excessive emotionalism. Edwards would say just because someone feels that they're having this great experience of grace doesn't mean they actually are. There are people who will, you know, cry out to God. They'll have, you know, they'll fall on the ground, shake, things like that. They'll have these great testimonies, but that can all be enthusiasm. That can all just be emotional excess, Edwards would say. Uh, I played football in college for about two months uh, in a school in Abilene. I won't say its name, uh, but it was a Christian college in Abilene. Uh, so uh, our, our coaches... Uh, because it was a Christian college in Abilene, I think we're forced to make us do like Bible study stuff. So when they were done cussing at us at practice, they were like, now let's go have a Bible study. Uh, and every time, you know, they put an iPod in and we would worship and everyone, hands up, loving it, guys crying, genuinely. The second it's done that night, they're, you know, sleeping around, going and getting wasted, all that stuff. And I was just like, what's happening? What's happening here? Clearly, if that was a genuine stirring of the Spirit of God, it doesn't lead to that, right? The Spirit doesn't work in our hearts and lead us to live like the devil. So that, that's, that's similar to what Edwards is saying here. Those emotions, that experience is false. That's not from God, that's from uh, the enemy. So Richard Lovelace, who's a scholar on uh, the awakening says this, high emotional experience, abusive religious talk, and even praising God and experiencing love for God uh, and man can be self-centered and self-motivated. Okay, so sometimes the tinglings someone is feeling during worship is the same tinglings you would hear or feel at, you know, Coldplay concert. Is Coldplay still cool? I don't know anything about music. Uh, but it's just excessive emotions that's tr literally tricking you into thinking, God's done a great work, I can do whatever I want. Uh, so uh, to Edwards, this is the most dangerous why. Why is this so dangerous to Edwards? He would say short-lived enthusiasm ultimately robs you from fellowship with the triune God. What could be more dangerous 
than pointing you away from the God you were created to know. So Edwards hates this. He hates it, not just because it's kind of muddying up the waters when he's trying to fight for the awakening, but because genuinely those people think they're okay and they're, going, they're sprinting away from the God that they were created for. That's where they're so dangerous. Again, remember, uh, or here's another quote from uh, Richard Lovelace. Fallen human nature is fertile ground for a fleshly religiosity, which is impressively spiritual, but ultimately rooted in self-love. Remember the, po- uh, the, the parable of the sower. Three uh, of the four seeds that are sown sprout, right? Three of the four, oh, okay, good. Those are all good soil. And then what happens to two of those three? No roots, dies away quickly. Others choked out by thorns. Again, think about that. You're watching something happen in someone's life and you think, great, there's a work of God happening now, there and then either the world chokes it out or they quickly fall away because it was just enthusiasm. That's what Edwards is getting at here. We want, to, we want a true good soil uh, for the gospel to take root in. So that's why he doesn't like bad, this, this, this excessive emotions. And then the good is what he calls true affections, true religious affections. Again, he wrote uh, uh, about this in his book, Religious Affections. There it is. We need to be clear. Stop naming our books like, you know, Verge for the Sky Purpose or whatever. Just like, what is it? Just write the title and just say what you're going to talk about. Uh, so, True affections, true religion in great part consists of holy affections. Here's a, it's a very simple thing. Again, we're all evangelical, so this will sound very familiar to us. The gospel changes your affections, your longings, your hopes, your purpose. What gets you out of bed in the morning is rewired when you become a Christian to be centered on God. What do we say? We call that things like genuinely converted or your heartfelt conversion. We, we talk about the heart so much. That's what we're getting at. These true affections, our lives have been changed. For God, again, Richard Lovelace says this, revival in Edward's understanding is not the special season of extraordinary religious excitement. It's not this varsity level of Christianity. Rather, it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life in a period, after a period of corporate declension. This is, just no, this is normal Christianity. This is us bearing the fruit of the Spirit in Edward's mind. So true affections, they produce this love for God, his holiness, love for one another, desire to obey him, desire to glorify him, right? Christianity isn't simply just acknowledging a few doctrines with our brain, okay? If that's it, James would say, nothing Nothing separates you from demons. They can do that too. They know God is triune. They know all those things. What's the difference? They don't love him. They hate that. They know it's true. They just hate that truth. And so uh, Edwards is saying, no, a Christian, the whole person gets changed, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come, Paul would say. Even about himself, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Right, all the all the all this descriptions of Christianity in the New Testament of old gone new, right? New love for God, new affections for God. You must be born again. Again, what was once a duty becomes a delight. You can't help but read the scriptures because you want to know the word of the God that you're so in love with. You can't help but pray. You can't help but evangelize. You, you want to tell others because you've tasted and seen, and so you want others to know how good He is. Things like that. So. Edwards gives signs, how how do we distinguish? If it all looks the same, if the emotions all look the same, how do we distinguish between true godly affections and the devil's counterfeit? These these aren't exhaustive, I've just written some of them here. Point one, God must truly be the source and the object of the affections. He's the source 
and the object. Again, is, is he a means or is he an end? We'll often ask you. Is God a means to getting to something else, right? That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. God gets me stuff or God gets me an awesome life or God gives me my best life now, subtweet of Joel Olstein, uh, right? So is he a means? You're just using him to get to something else or is he what you're trying to get to? You became a Christian because you want him. You want to know him. You want to fellowship with the Father, Son, and spirit, right? Is he a means or is he an end? Edward says that's the first thing. He must be the object and the source of uh, our affections. Uh, I won't read Edward's quote. I have it there for you. Uh, he would say, you know, enthusiasm it just fades away, but affections, true affections draws you in to worship and glorify God. Number two, uh, true affections bring about Christian humility. Christian humility. Uh, Edward says, true religious affections are attained with evangelical humiliation, right? True humility, this understanding that you are just dust, right? You're a creature made from the dust. He is a creator. You're a sinner before him. You're only good because Christ has saved you. And now when the father looks at you, he sees his son. He sees you as perfect because you're in Christ, right? But there's that recognition. We've all heard testimonies when someone's like, man, back in the day, I used to do every drug imaginable, and I would sleep around because I was a player. I mean, I was good at it. And then I realized, you know what? I got to uh, clean up my life. Uh, and so I did. And I'm a Christian now. And you're like, hang on a minute. There's something missing in your testimony. Jesus. It's all just about how awesome you were, right? Edwards would say, that's not a genuine work in the spirit. If your testimony is just how awesome you used to be and how awesome you are now because you realize that, you know, you need to believe in God. That's not true. Or that's, that's not a true work of God. A true Christian realizes who they are before holy God and that the, all the goodness is, uh, that's in them comes from Christ. Number three, true affection bring about Christ-like character. Again, think about the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Edward says, true religious affections tend to and are attained with a lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. They naturally beget and promote a spirit of love, meekness, quietness, uh, forgetfulness, or forgiveness, sorry, not forgetfulness, forgiveness uh, and mercy as appeared in Christ. If Jesus Christ changed your life and is, is, is the founder and perfecter of your faith, you're going to look like him, right? Simple. Number four, true affections produces fruit of Christian obedience. Gracious and holy affections have their exercise and fruit in Christian practice. Feelings are not the mark of the work of God. The fruit is. Again, you will know them by their fruit. When someone is crying out at Whitfield's sermon, you say, that's great. I love that you're crying and you're convicted of sin. Let's see in a month if you still hate your sin and want to put it to death and you want to glorify him. Let's see in a year if you have your affections still stirred, if he's still the object of your affections. That's how we'll know if what's working in you is truly the spirit of God or if it's just the thing to do because everybody else is doing it as well and it's a counterfeit from the enemy. And then number five, this is really important. True affections are in line with the scriptures and promote sound doctrine. Uh, I'm super passionate about this because I spent some time in a charismatic young adults missions organization where things would happen where they would do something that the Bible says not to do. And so I would take my Bible and I would say, hey, I'm not gonna say anything to you, but... Uh, God says here, what you just did, you shouldn't do, literally, right there. And they would say things like, you know what, Jared? You've got the Bible on the throne. You need to take the Bible off the throne. You need to put God back on the throne. And I would say, okay, I may understand. So because I love the king and I want to put him on the throne, I should ignore everything he says. Is that what you're saying? Is that how I should honor him? Just 
he didn't mean that. He meant what I thought he meant. No, right? So, so the same spirit that wrote the Bible, if I can say it that way, is going to move amongst us in the way in which he said he would. Okay, so, so true affections. If you see something happening among us and it's just totally contrary to the scriptures, that's easy. That's not God, right? That's, that's the devil's counterfeits. I have a little chart there, stole this from uh, Justin Taylor, difference between uh, affections and enthusiasm, long-lasting versus fleeting, deep versus superficial, things like that. So that's, that's Edwards, again, trying to shepherd his people. How do we know this is a genuine work of God? This isn't all fake like some are saying, but how do we know which is of God and which is of the enemy? So that's the theology. That is the main piece. Again, think about, we'll talk in just a second, of how that affects us as evangelicals. We use that language too. And then lastly, almost out of time, we don't have time for questions, sorry. Uh, the, the effects of the awakening. Obviously, the first is just mass conversion. Uh, the most important one, people who do not know God coming to know God is obviously the first. We don't have a number on it, but thousands, uh, most likely, believing the gospel and coming into the kingdom. Uh, mainly for us, the roots of evangelicalism, a lot of that comes out of this. The, the emphasis on heart change, on genuine conversion, on uh, regeneration. Uh, the emphasis on a personal relationship with God, not just belonging to a certain group. The emphasis on the Bible as uh, forming our, our hearts. The Bible as spiritual formation. We get a lot of that, almost all of it from the, the awakenings that kind of lead to this. Uh, George Whitfield and his preaching leads to kind of a breaking down of the very strong uh, uh, insulation of denominations. So uh, I have a long quote there from Richard Lovelace I won't read, but... Uh, Presbyterians, you're only dealing with Presbyterians. Baptists, we don't deal with any Methodists. Are you kidding me? Right? That's all pre-Whitfield. But who's in Whitfield's crowds? Everyone. Multi-denominations. And so what that kind of does is, is bring about this denominational melting pot where now we have things like the Gospel Coalition, which is filled with charismatic people and non-denominational people and Baptists and Presbyterians and things like that. We have these organizations that kind of feed multiple uh, multiple denomination. Some of our favorite pastors are Presbyterian. Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller. Oh my gosh, I said it. Okay. Tim will strike that from the record. Uh, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors, is an Anglican, right? A lot of that is coming from the awakening when uh, the, the dividing lines aren't as strong anymore. And then again, a lot of Edward's writing on revival brings about this emphasis on true heart transformation. How many of you, when you're talking about uh, a Catholic uh, will say something like, you know, I don't love that they're Catholic, but I know they love the Lord, right? We, we say, we either hear that or we've said stuff like that. What are you saying there? Their heart has been changed. I know that's true. I know they'll be in heaven one day. I just don't like the group they're in. Where does that come from, this? Right, you say that because Edwards put it in your mouth, right? So uh, that's a lot of the, the roots of evangelicalism. There's a lot of breaking down of the social hierarchy, again, before the awakening, very strong class systems. After the awakening, the masses now are thinking for themselves. They're calling against the leadership. And what does that lead to in about 30 years? The American Revolution. Again, Whitfield and Ben Franklin were much closer friends than Whitfield and Edwards because Whitfield and Ben Franklin shared the revolutionary spirit, even though uh, Franklin wasn't a Christian. So a lot of that, there's, there's a lot of scholarly thought. Obviously, we don't say if the awakening didn't happen, the revolution wouldn't have happened, but there's a lot of, of thought of this massive movement that put uh, the masses in control rather than the hierarchy in control significantly, significantly would have uh, contributed to it. And then lastly, the rise of emotions in the Christian life. The church has never been emotionally dead, but what the awakening does is puts a new priority 
on emotions, an emotional response to the gospel, uh, and uh, uh, ex- descriptions of cut to the heart, right? Uh, if you hear someone's testimony and they just kind of tell you monotone, there's probably, maybe not a lot of it, but there's probably something in you that thinks, I wonder how genuine that is. They didn't seem very excited about the gospel. Again, where do you get that? You get that from the awakenings. And again, emotions are a good thing. The good version of them are affections, tr- true godly affections. The bad is uh, enthusiasm, excessive emotionalism, the devil's counterfeit. And then of course in our day, the emotions uh, over truth. Emotions are true even if reality contradicts them or if truth const- contradicts them. That's the bad version of it. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay, do the hard work that Edwards did and say, okay, well, which of this is truly a work of God? Okay, so those are the main effects and uh, someone out of time, but just in closing, every generation, every generation needs an awakening. New England, I don't know if you've noticed, isn't like super Christian anymore. Edwards Church, if you see in his picture on the front that I put in there, there's uh, an LGBTQ plus flag outside of it, right? Edwards Church is very, very liberal. New England, we all, you know, we all know, isn't you know, this, this center of Christian revival. Every generation needs a revival. And so what I want us to think about as we reflect on things like the First Great Awakening is, do we kind of follow in their legacy of begging God to do it again? begging God to stir in our generation people who love the gospel, people who love him, who want to to share in fellowship with him, people who want to fight the good fight with every one of the, or every last breath. And do we expect it? Do we expect it in our own lives? Do we expect sanctification to actually happen uh, when we come in and hear from the scriptures and we worship God together like we will in 30 minutes? Or is this just kind of the game that we play because we're Christian and we're in the Bible Belt and it's normal, at least for now? Right? That's, a, that's a serious question we need to ask ourselves. But let, that, uh, let the awakening stir that in you. Let it, let it make you think about, okay, am I a person of prayer? Do I cherish the word? Am I, do I want the word preached? And am I a person of repentance? Am I quick to repent? Am I quick to pray that others might repent? So let me pray. Sorry, no questions. You can email them to us if you want, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you for this, uh, this, this period of history where your spirit was poured out. We know it's happened all across history. This is just a famous one, and we pray that it would happen in our day. Uh, whether it catches headlines or not, or whether it's remembered uh, you know, 300 years from now or not, we don't really care. We care that it happens. We care that disciples are made and that you're glorified, and we pray that would first happen with us that we wouldn't allow uh, the normality of Christianity to, to make us complacent, but rather we would uh, want to love you more today than we did yesterday and walk in your ways, walk in more peace and more joy and more holiness yet, uh, today than we did yesterday. And then we would want to see it with others, that when we look at our neighbor, we don't just see the person that's loud on Friday nights when we're trying to sleep, but we would see someone who needs the gospel and that you would stir that in our hearts. We would be more evangelistic. We would be more uh, longing to see, like Whitfield said, longing to see lost souls come to Christ. You can do it. You have throughout history. We pray that you would do it uh, in our generation as well. We love you. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen.